It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. My name is John Schmelk, joined by Paul Dottino on Lance Meadow. The phone number for you. We'll try to squeeze in your calls, folks, at about 15 minutes at 1.15 or so before we have our guest at 1.30. So get on the line. We'll screen you. We'll get you up. It's 201-939-4513, 201-939-4513. Only a small window for calls today. We apologize for starting an hour later and, and for having to move that show at the last moment, uh, but we found out this morning that the Giants were having a head coach Brian Dable and, and a select group of players uh, speaking at exactly a noon today, so we decided we should listen to that, see what they had to say, then we can come in here and talk coach about it. Coach did not consult with you, John. No, he did not, which is not surprising. Nobody <laughs> consults with me about anything, and, and, and by the way, nor should he. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit again. I want to squeeze in about 15, 20 minutes of your call, so get on the line again, 201 939-4513. Uh, Matt Waldman, he does his rookie scouting portfolio, his RSP, uh, on all the skill positions in the draft. So we'll get heavy into that group of players uh, coming your way at 130. All right, guys. You know, Brian Dable, it's funny. Uh, listening to him today, and he spoke first. He's such a congelia, you know, guy. He's so friendly. He's so smiling. He's non-confrontational. But he does a great job of talking for a while and not really saying anything. Um, so I don't really have a whole lot that I thought he said today um, that was huge. I think, you know, the most important thing that I picked up that I thought was very interesting is that he was asked about the wide receivers uh, coming back this year and, you know, getting them going after them not having any touchdowns last year, Tony and Galladay specifically. And and he said, I thought the interesting thing that I got from his answer to that question is he wants to see if the wide receivers can pick up the playbook and learn the system so they can see the position through the eyes of the quarterbacks because they have a lot of route adjustments in their system and the wide receivers have to be ready for that. And it reminded me, for all the, the oldies out there that are listening to this, mm-hmm. Go to ahead. Kevin Gilbride's yes. system when he was here with the Giants. So, Bingo. Which, by the way, has its positives and negatives. Because when it's working and it's clicking and everyone's on the same page, it's hard to stop. But when you're trying to mix and match people in, and maybe they're not quite you know, on point with that sort of stuff, sometimes the results can be interceptions and things that don't look so great. So that was the thing that kind of jumped out to me the most about Dable um, in terms of the things he said. You guys can comment on that. And then you guys can hit anything else that you think is interesting. I totally agree with what you said, John, and that's the first thing that hit my mind is that this has Kevin Gilbride written all over it, and so that was kind of a cool thing. But I thought the one other item, which I know the fans are really anxious to hear about, he was asked about the injury situation and what can he do or what have they done to try to improve the Giants' injury situation. So he said they looked back at the last two years to see exactly how things were done in terms of the workouts, in terms of the preparation, in terms of what what did they tell them to do to ramp up, this and that. And obviously they're going to try to make adjustments based on what they've learned. And we've heard that from every single coaching sure. staff the minute It doesn't mean it's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, he said that. Dable said he that, knows too. that. Yeah. He, he understands that. He's like, look, we just want guys to be as healthy as they can be on Sunday because we need healthy players. Well, that's always the motto. But I do think that it's interesting in that he said they were examining the last two years of what the Giants did. 
it wasn't like he said we're coming down here and bringing all of the strength and technici- uh, and techniques from Buffalo. Well, he didn't say that. Obviously not. They kept the strength and right. conditioning coach in place. And I thought that was interesting to me because he's not just, you know, pulling up the Buffalo program and bringing it here. Throwing the baby out with he's the bathwater, doing that. for example. Yes. So, so they're going to try to see what happened here, what may have caused the injury troubles, and see if they can clean that stuff up. I, I did think there was some value in, in, in that part of it. Lance, what you got? Well, you have to understand also Dable's been with a lot of organizations over the course of his career. So he's got plenty of notes, I'm sure, in terms of strength and conditioning and how injuries are handled. So to me, it's not just necessarily the Buffalo model that he could turn back to. It's also plenty of other teams that he's worked with. And then you get feedback from obviously the individuals that are within the Giants organization. But as you pointed out, John, we've heard every coach ask the same question when they take over over the last few years. And it's the same thing. We're evaluating things. So I don't think Dable is overwhelmed. That was my takeaway. I think like anything else, when he arrives at a new team, he takes things from there that he liked. And then he also adjusts to what the existing staff has to say. And a lot of it was also, guys, remember, on the players and what they do on and off the field. You know, sometimes you can lead a horse to water, okay, and the horse is not necessarily going to drink the water to use a parallel. So it's the same thing with the players. You can have a great game plan, right? Do the players buy in? Do the players say to themselves, all right, maybe I shouldn't do a little extra work when I get home in the weight room or whatever in my house? You know, they have to cooperate and buy in as much as the coach and the staff has to. I think that is a big part of the equation. With respect to the whole wide receiver point, to me, that's the prime example of why we preach on this program and any other conversation we've had with examples of quarterbacks who have had different offenses every other year, why continuity is so important. Because if the wide receivers now are learning a new system and they're asked to do something different that Joe Judge and Pat Shermer did not ask them to do, You can't just rely on Daniel Jones saying, well, I've been on the field with X, Y, and Z at the receiver position over the course of the last three years because now that chemistry really doesn't hold a lot of weight because they're asked to now do something completely different and make adjustments based on what Dable's scheme and Kafka's scheme calls for. So that's another reason why it's going to be imperative for Daniel Jones to sort of rebuild the chemistry with the entire offensive personnel compared to what he was working with in previous years. Yeah, and I think that's a a good segue here, Lance, to kind of jump to what Daniel Jones said when he spoke to the media. Uh, First and foremost is that he feels great. There's really no concerns to the injury. He fully expects to be cleared and ready to go uh, when contact is required at the end of July, beginning of August. Whenever they get back on the field for OTAs, he expects to be out there and be good to go. Uh, that was really the two, uh, the most newsworthy thing he said. Then the other part of it that I thought was interesting, he seemed, you know, Daniel's very flatline when it comes to these interviews. He doesn't usually show a lot of <laughs> excitement or emotion. Um, he learned well. <laughs> but, yeah, you know what, though? Eli, Eli actually, I think, was like a little bit more like emotional even than, than Daniel was in And Eli ways. had a dry wit and a humor about yeah. him that he could interject. Correct. Daniel doesn't seem to want any part of humor. Well, he also hasn't had the success Eli had yet. So. That's true. Well, Eli also had a lot more years in the Correct. league to get comfortable with interacting with the media and opening up, too, I think. Correct. So I thought the most interesting thing, he did seem genuinely excited talking about the new offense and... You know, how he watched what the Bills have done, what the Chiefs have done, and, and he sees now that he's finally gotten his hands on the actual playbook, which is allowed now because the offseason program has started. And by the way, folks, the reason they, the, the player spoke today is because this was player arrival day. The Giants get to start their offseason program a week earlier than everybody because they have a new coach, so the player showed up for the first time today. You're going to have a couple weeks of just, you know, uh, weight room stuff, 
meeting room stuff. Then you're going to have a voluntary mini camp the week before the draft. So that's kind of why the players did speak today. But uh, what I was saying is that he did seem genuinely excited about the prospect of working in this Dable Kafka system. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt uh, he has studied the Buffalo and Kansas City tapes. He discussed that, uh, said it's an awesome opportunity. You can see things on tape. The system has a lot, and you can do a lot of different things. Um, I, I think the the interesting part of the characterization of what those offenses do when he said these offenses have scored a lot of points and created a lot of explosive plays and had a lot of success, but we will build on it here around what these guys do well. There's that word again, John, adaptability. Not just transplanting what other people have done and doing it here. He realizes that he's not Josh Allen and he's not Patrick Mahomes. So you have to adapt those kinds of things. And Paul Schwartz actually asked him about to what you, you can know, do. Paul Schwartz actually asked him straight up, like, you see those two teams play, right? but, you know, you're not Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. And Dan was like, nope, nope, I'm not. He gets it. Yeah, he gets it. He gets it. I, and, I, and I think that's fine. He also took responsibility and said, we haven't scored enough points. Offense hasn't done enough. Yep. I get that. You know, and I take responsibility that make I need to make that. this team better. Yeah. He's, he's got that right around the throat. He's not running away from it. Oh, no, he he, he put that straight up. He, he To your point, he said straight up, we haven't won enough games and we haven't scored enough points, and that's my responsibility, regardless of what's happening around me, to make that happen. So that should at least make Giant fans happy. Oh, and one that. other thing, the fifth-year option, he said that's for another time. Not even thinking about it right now. Focused Shocking. on just trying to get things done today, and we'll take that when it comes. And I didn't expect anything else from him. It's also out of his hands, in fairness, Paul. Sure it is. I mean, he has no control, right? No doubt. It's a team option. So the Giants, the Paul's in their court in terms of what they want to do coming up in May. Yep. Anything from Daniel that uh, struck you, Lance? No, I mean, I think you guys covered everything. Once again, I think there's only so much you can take away from these introductory pressers as the offseason starts. I think everybody is excited, and rightfully so, but it's really in the preliminary phase for all of these guys to get used to Brian Dable and the new coaching staff. I mean, even Dable said he was talking about Adoree Jackson, for example, and he said, you know, he may have had one conversation with him over the last month, but today a little bit more personal opportunity to interact with some of these guys because I'm sure a lot of it has been over Zoom or maybe, hey, you pass them in the building for the guys that have been rehabbing. So we're really still in the get-to-know-you phase for the coaching staff and the players, and I think that holds true for even Daniel Jones, the quarterback. Yeah, and he was asked, by the way, Brian Dable, about the report this morning that there was a restructure on Adore Jackson's contract. He basically said, I, you know, that's a better question for Joe Shane, who will, by the way, talk to the media on April 21st, the week before the draft for his pre-draft presser. Um, but he was asked about that, and we obviously saw the reports, and as the Giants continue to try to, you know, not only get enough money for the draft class, but then operate during the regular season, uh, even if a Bradbury trade happens, that still wouldn't have been enough, per se. So, uh, a little more need to be done, and, you know, Joe Shane said he really want to try to do things like that. Uh, if the reports are true, obviously, he just decided that there was no other way to, you know, have the financial flexibility necessary um, to... Uh, operate here. A couple well, John, of, yes, just real please. quickly, I just wanted to interject. I mean, I think Joe Shane made it clear that was sort of the last resort right. or an option you didn't want to go to. But I think as we've learned in life, 
sometimes the last resort doesn't mean never, meaning you could get to the last resort and you could have to all of a sudden do things that you didn't anticipate, especially if you feel this is the only way we're going to gain some financial flexibility. Because remember, the biggest priority for the Giants, it's not so much about free agency. It's to make sure you have enough money to sign the draft class, okay? You want to be able to bring these guys in and make sure that all of a sudden at the last second, you're not searching for pennies under the couch, okay? So, I mean, I think that's what they're prioritizing. And then once they get through that wave, if they feel, okay, we need more wiggle room, God forbid there's injuries to bring in some free agents, they'll cross that bridge when they get to that point. But it's one thing to say you don't want to do it in January. Then all of a sudden, late March, early April comes around, you realize, well, now we all of a sudden have to go to that last resort. Yeah, a couple of the players spoke as well. Sterling Shepard said he has no timetable for his potential return off that Achilles tendon injury, most important thing. Second thing he said, and, you know, he was kind of pressed a little bit about, you know, doing that contract restructure and taking that, you know, a pay cut. And he said, look, when they came to me and talked to me about it, they made it clear they wanted me here because they could have just let me go if they didn't. He said that was important to him, and he wanted to stay here. He could tell they wanted him here, and given... You know, the fact that he was injured, he just thought the pros outweighed the cons, and that's why he decided to stay. And, you know, it's rare, and it takes specific circumstances for a player to be willing to do the type of thing that Shepard did, and it just seemed to work this year, given the injury and where the Giants were salary cap-wise. So he kind of that was his reasoning in terms of why he decided to stick out here, despite the fact he had to adjust his contract a little Similar bit. comments from Blake Martinez. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep who has to come back from a serious knee injury. He said he was super excited about the way Martindale commands the room and his style of defense. Talking about the contract, he said it came down to my family. Uh, he understood the familiarity uh, with some of the players here and did not want to uproot his family and his kids, you know, have to go to school. Uh, also talking about here that uh, he says, I know what these coaches were bringing, and I wanted to go out and prove the type of player uh, that he was as he tries to come back said quote it's going well and taking it day by day with the trainers and for those of you who keep calling us all the time and asking about the field he refused to blame the field for his knee injury he said uh, he thinks maybe it was his worn out cleats they had worn them too long and they had been worn out and he said he thought that the reason was perhaps that his cleats had lost their grip on the turf and that's when he got hurt. Well, he said, he I thought he knee. said his foot slid in the cleat. And that's what got him, I thought he said. No? I When he said the cleats were worn out, I thought he meant that the cleats slid. No, I think what he said, because he wore the cleat. I, I, what, what I thought he meant is that the cleats, he had worn them so much. You know when you wear sneakers a lot, they kind of get loose inside. Yeah. They're not as snug. We'll need clarification. And his foot slid in the cleat. I'm not sure. Okay, I got you. I'm not sure context-wise anyway, what he meant. But he wasn't blaming the turf. It was that's foot, the bottom line. It was line. a footwear issue is what he said. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yes. Hmm? Well, and the other thing that Shepard and Blake also, I think, expressed consistently in terms of the timetable, neither one has a definitive timetable in terms of their return. I think that was the injury news was probably the most important element in play of what we learned today. Shepard just said it's day to day. Martinez really said the same thing. Martinez did emphasize rehab is going well, but it's not like he said, hey, day one of training camp, absolutely going to be ready to go. And Shepard didn't even want to go there. He just said he's listening to the medical people. And it's understandable. Remember, Shepard got hurt in week 15 with the torn Achilles, whereas Martinez got hurt in week three, so he's a little bit ahead of the curve, but still, you're talking about a torn ACL, and everybody's very different. 
regardless of the position in how they come back from an injury like that. So those two guys, much less definitive than Daniel. Daniel said, hey, I feel great. I'm going to be ready to go. The other two, it's more of a up-in-the-air type of timetable at this point. All right, folks, let's get on the lines here. We only got about 13 minutes to take your calls at 201-939-4513. 201-939-4513. Also, we don't have a call screener today, so we'll try to get through those calls. Then we'll have Matt Waldman again joining us um, at one. 30. Uh, guys, Avery McKinney spoke as well. Um, you could tell that bothered maybe is the wrong word, but he, you know, he was impacted by the fact that he decided to let go of Logan Ryan, talked about what a great leader he was and how he's taught him a lot of things. And He mentioned James Bradbury, by the way, in, in the same regard, who obviously is still with the organization, but we've all heard the you know potential of a, uh, of a trade there as the Giants try to manage the cap. So I thought that was interesting for McKinney, and he said he's more than ready and happy to take on a bigger leadership role in that secondary. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that Xavier McKinney, from the first day he stepped onto this campus, has had that kind of assertiveness and confidence about him. He has a certain Alabama swagger to him, I think it's fair to say. Uh, well prepared by Nick Saban to come into this league, and, and I see no reason why he can't step up. It's interesting you brought up Logan Ryan because Sterling was asked about, and Sterling's been here, right, extremely longer than anybody else. He's probably one of the most longest tenure Giants at this point being drafted in 2016. But Shepard talked about how he's been so close to Evan Ingram that he basically thinks Evan's his brother. And it was kind of weird and awkward coming to the facility for the first time and Evan not being around. So I think both players who spoke, one on the offensive side of the ball, one on the defensive side of the ball, expressed that, hey, they're used to it. It's part of the business. The turnover rate is very high, but sometimes there's still that adjustment period when you've built such strong relationships with teammates and you realize they're no longer across the hall or whatever it may be from you. Anything else jump out to you two before we uh, jump to another topic or take some calls? We covered it all. Lance? I think we covered, yeah, every single angle, at least in terms of the important takeaways. It was a fun morning, John. It's so good to get back to NFL football again. This isn't NFL football. Yeah, it's I, guys talking into a microphone. Oh, it's still NFL football. Players in the building. I love it. You know, it's been a ghost town here for a couple of months. Now at least players are back, and I could, I could start chewing on it again. I love it. I hate the offseason. It's so boring. Well, get used to it because there's a lot more months to go. I hate to break <laughs> it to you, Paul. We're I not know. playing football until August. Well, actually, Lance, and that's not even meaningful football. Thank God there's a USFL. Oh, I'm so happy to have spring football again. Anyway, go ahead. You need help. You know that, right? Like that's serious psychological help. Uh, I digest footballs for breakfast. This is a problem. I know. I love the game. I can't help yeah, it. Yeah, but this isn't the game. <laughs> it's it's talking the game. What have we been doing the past three months? Uh, this is better. Three months? Having what about players, 12 months a year having we've been players, talking about? No, I, I, having I, I, players. I, I, the season had having players and coaches actually speak without us having to sit here behind inside these four walls trying to come up with stuff. No, this is good. This is good. Shall we go? All right, guys, we only have about 10 minutes here. If you want to get a call on 201-939-4513, 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. Hey, Giants season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. And, guys, this is really the last week here for Pro Days. Uh, we're going to have LSU's Pro Day this week, and it does sound like Derek Stingley Jr. is going to participate. Let's see. from that list Frank injury. That's what they're saying. So that'll be fun. Uh, and then 
all we got left is our 30 visits where each team now can once again get back to their full 30 men. You know, 30 people can prospects can visit each one of the teams. Then, you know, I believe starting next week, the scouts come back and they begin their draft meetings to get the board together. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's fair to say with 22 days until the first night of the draft, we are, or 24 days, pardon me. We are, I, I got it mixed up with the due date. Uh, also a very important day for me. Uh, <laughs> we are officially in the home stretch, getting ready for this NFL draft, and it's fun. I hear the trainer coming. It's rolling down the bend. Let's go, baby. I'll tell, well, you, I'll tell you what, Lance. Honestly, uh, you know, you and I have talked for years about how mock drafts are nothing more than mocks. Uh, that's the beauty of when the draft finally gets here, is that we don't have to hear any, any more of these predictions about who's going where, for God's sakes. Yeah, I look forward to the draft because we get the definitiveness. We associate now teams with actual players and vice versa, as opposed to you know going through all these hypothetical scenarios. So the faster it gets here, the better. I'm all for that. Well, you won't see me complaining yeah, from I mean, that standpoint. And I think part of it, too, now, we're, I, th I think when we start, I think all the mock drafts we've seen so far, a lot of it is is just a process and, and part of the game here to try to figure out what some potential scenarios are. But I think once you start seeing teams finish with pro day circuits, once you start seeing the 30 visits and then stuff starts getting out there, I think you get a more definitive feel as to what teams are actually thinking and considering with what they might do with their picks since they have all the information at their disposal. So I do think as we get closer here, we're going to get some more uh, definitive things. All right, we got some calls on the line. 201-939-4513. As a reminder, I do not have a call screener, so I'm just going to click you on. You're going to hear a click. That means you're the caller that's up, and then I'm going to do this. Hey, caller, what's your name and where you calling from? Hi, my name's Adam from Atlanta. Adam, what's up, man? What do you got for us today? Uh, just uh, love the show. I call in this time every year, so I appreciate you guys doing this. Oh, thanks for um, if, if the Giants do trade Bradbury, um, do you think that cornerback becomes a greater need than edge rusher at this point? And if they do do go cornerback with one of their two picks, who are the second-round edge rushers that you guys think will be there and that you really like in our New scheme. How about equal, Adam? I mean, I don't, I don't want to put one need greater than the other because I think you have kind of one starter at each. At, if if Bradbury gets moved, you have one starter at each spot you feel good about, whether it's a Dory Jackson or Aziz Ojolari, and then you're sitting there and you're like, all right, well, who's the second guy? So I, I really do think that the needs are equal. I do think in Wing Martindale's system, the cornerback position is probably a little bit more important. So if you want a lean cornerback there. Uh, I, I think you can, but I think when you're evaluating those players and if there's a corner and an edge on the board, uh, since both needs are there, I think that's purely a calculation of which player you think is better, and that's the player that you pick. I think okay. the wild card here is what they think of a guy like Aaron Robinson and where they could fit him yeah. in in the event that they part ways with James Bradbury. Yeah, Darnay remember, Holmes too, right? Yeah, Darnay yeah. Holmes, but I think maybe Darnay maybe more of a slot guy in terms of how they view him. Yep. I'm not saying that it's impossible to move him around, but I think Aaron may have a little bit more flexibility in that department if Bradbury's not here. So that, to me, is more of the X factor. How does Wink envision him in the event that he can't turn to Bradbury anymore? And maybe that changes the dynamics of what they think of the cornerback position. I think there's a lot of 
question marks in terms of the pass rush. I wouldn't dispute what John said in terms of I think the cornerback is important in wing system, especially if you're putting guys out on an island and you're telling them to cover. But you could really alleviate the secondary if you can consistently get after the quarterback, and that has been an issue for the Giants at times, and I think it reared its ugly head multiple times during the course of the season last year. So if there's a primary guy that can get after the quarterback, if I'm the Giants, I wouldn't hesitate in terms of pulling the trigger there. I'm going to make it real simple for you. For the first time in many, 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 many years, the draft's depth and the Giants' need and value board should probably line up really, really well. And it's been an awful long time since that has been the case. So it doesn't really matter. With the number of positions that they need to get guys, don't don't freak out if they get just one guy in the first round that you really, really wanted or one guy in the second round you really, really wanted. Because wait until this whole thing plays out. They've got nine picks right now. John has said trade, get more. Maybe they will. Bottom line is, after the entire supermarket carton is full, then tell me if you think that they missed on anybody. Well, and I, and I think the second part of his question is important, right? Because I do think the edge rusher spot is deeper than the cornerback spot in this draft. So maybe then that leans you to go, let's say if you have a choice between Sauce or, or, or Thibodeau early or Trayvon Walker, right? Maybe you lean Sauce, but you can get that edge rusher later. As for the edge rushers that I like later on, I think... A couple guys you want to keep an eye on. I got to break out my notebook here, but two guys to come in mind just off the top of my head. Uh, I think Boye Mafe out of Minnesota is a guy that if he's there at the top of the second round, I think you got to think long and hard about it. Uh, Arnold, uh, Arnold Ebichetti out of Penn State is another guy that I like there as a pick in, in the early 30s. Anyone, Paul or Lance, jump out to you guys that, that could be a potential second-round edge and still be on the board there in that second round if you don't happen to get one of those guys off the top? I just spent the whole last week digging into offense. Defense is coming up, so I'm not throwing any okay. names out there That's right fine. now. Yeah, I mean, the two guys you named, uh, I certainly find appealing. I don't know if there's necessarily anybody else that I would say is a must. I think the only other guy that I'm going to throw out, and Paul and I actually had this conversation on a previous show, is because of the Ojabo injury, if he oh, falls— do you start to think about, and once again, the point I was making is I don't think the Giants are in a luxury right now, John, to take a guy like that, even if he's there in the second round, because I think they need an impactful player to come in this season. I don't think they can afford to say, well, bring a guy in and he'll be a red shirt. So I'd shy away from him that early. I wouldn't take him off my board, but he's another guy that if he's there because of his talent and his resume... Do you jump the gun and think a little bit big picture? So that's why I would throw his name out there. I have to go with Kingsley Enigbare out of South Carolina is another guy uh, that I would think about there. Some people like Drake Jackson out of USC. I'm not the biggest fan of him. Um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't move as well as the other guys, in my opinion. But uh, those are those are some of the names that I think could be attractive. You to know, people. part of the problem for me, I'm still not convinced of exactly what kind of scheme the Giants are going to play. Just because, just because Martindale played what he played with Baltimore and he usually had just three guys down, he plays a lot of amoeba defense with a lot of guys floating and a lot of guys mugging and a lot of guys standing up. That changes your perspective based on the strengths of the prospects as to which guy you want. For example, if Martindale says, I want you to draft an edge rusher for me, but I want this guy to be in a two-point stance. I'm not going to use him down very often. I want him to be a two-point guy, 
And, and I'm not going to always send him off the edge. I'm going to have a whole bunch of plays because I'm going to want to mix him up. I'm going to want to throw him around in the A gap and the B gap, like what Michael Parsons does with the Dallas Cowboys. That now changes the style of the edge rusher that you want to draft. So there's a lot of unknowns here. So I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to start giving you names anyway. Well, well, well what kind of style are you thinking? You thinking a bigger guy, a smaller guy? What do you think he'd be looking well, for? It, 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 again, it, you're going to look for a more power guy if he's going to be somebody who's just going to wind up being on the tackle, maybe play a little wide nine stuff, or maybe he's going to be coming well, off well, the Well, you know. I, I understand, but what, what do you think they're going to be targeting? I, right now? I don't know yet. Well, I don't gonna, think we have enough information. Well, we're, we're never, we're never going to have enough information. We probably yet. won't. Which is why, when it comes down to this, and we're doing our second round draft show, you know, we'll be throwing out names, but we're really going to be throwing mud against the wall because we really don't know, and that's that's a problem. There are there are there are big pieces of this math equation that we not only won't have, but probably will never have. I mean, can't you look at the type of edge players that he had in Baltimore though and go off of that? You can. But that doesn't necessarily translate. As you and Lance have both said before, there's adaptability here. Now, what if what if he says, I'll give you a great example. O'Shane Zimenez is still on this team right now. And thanks for the call, by the way. Okay? O'Shane Zimenez is still on this roster. We all agree his production has been very limited to this point. But he is on the roster. What if he thinks O'Shane Zimenez is a useful edge rusher who can do a lot of the stand-up stuff on the side and some of the mugging that he wants him to do. If that's the case, and I don't know if that's the case, but if Martindale thinks that there's something there that we haven't seen yet, now he's going to be more apt probably to want a stronger guy who emphasizes more power. But we don't know that stuff yet. Yeah, but well, you could also argue, though, Paul, Zimenez was a 2019 pick, so he's going to be entering the final year of his contract. I don't know how heavy of an influence I'd want Zimenez on my mind, I guess. I'm using I'm him strictly as no, no, an example. No, no, I know you are, but what I'm saying because is Because he's is a that, guy that we don't know enough about, and certainly Martindale probably doesn't either. Sure, but the fact that this could very well be his final season well, What do you think Giants of Ellison Smith? Let me go to Ellison Smith. Let me wipe this off the table so blow your argument out of the water. Ellison oh. Smith is was a rookie last year. Sure. We don't have very much on him. Well, here's my point, Paul. What I don't, does Wake I, Ell- uh, Martindale think about Ellison Smith? I don't think you're making any of your decisions in the draft based on... On Ocean Zimenez or Ellison Smith. That's I think point. you're just drafting yeah. your best guy. Well, yeah. I want you need to, more than two anyway. I, I believe you have to still go best player available. I'm still always going to be on that that boat. You know that. But if it comes down to second and third round, and you start going deeper into the draft, well, now you do have to consider what it is that you have on your roster and how you're going to use those no, guys specific- and how you're going to use the prospect. No, but I understand. But they're going to play the same spot. So here's the problem. What if Wink Martindale says to Shane, Ellerson Smith has exactly what I want. He's the guy. That's the guy who's going to be featured on the edge for me. I think he's got exactly what I want. Chances are then they're not going to go and take somebody who's coming into the NFL who doesn't have what he wants because he's already got that guy. I just I don't know we how don't much they're going to be tanking on that. We don't Paul. know the answer. Yeah, yeah, I, but I mean, mm. you're also talking about a guy that's got a tiny sample size, regardless I, of the I, fact that he was only drafted last year. Lance, you're missing the point. It's a variable that we don't know. No, but Paul, our point is that we don't we don't think it's an important variable. We think they're just Wink's going to have all right. 
here's the type of guy I want as an edge rush for me to get after the quarterback. And if I end up having another one of those guys in Ellison Smith, and then I draft another guy that's just as good, well, then I have three guys that can yeah, rush can the rotate. passer. Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Except now when you're getting deeper into the draft and you're going into the second and third and fourth rounds or whatever, and now you say, well, Shane's going to sit there and he's going to have guys in the cluster and now he's got to talk to those coordinators and he's got to talk to those coaches and say, guys, look, what do you want to do? What are you trying to accomplish with who? Can you do it with the guy you have on the roster? And if Wink Martindale says, yes, I can do what I want to do with Carter Coughlin, with Cam Brown, with Ellison Smith. See, I picked all rookies from last year, so you can't, you can't debate me on this one, Lance. These no, guys, not, these guys I, are going to be around for the, a couple of years. The point was that even if they were rookies last year, I'm still not banking on them because I've got a new do. coaching staff and a completely new mindset. I'm not saying you bank on them. What I'm saying is if Wink Martindale feels he has a role for those guys and he knows what they want to do, if there are guys in a cluster at a different position, maybe all of a sudden at that point the tight ends room well, says, hey, Paul, we're, we're not, here. We're not talking about picking a different position. We're talking about picking the type of edge rusher you want. Yeah, but you may have to go to a different position. Yeah, but that wasn't the question. (sighs) All right, never mind. I'm just saying that I'm not allowing the young guys to heavy influence who I want maybe at the similar position. Yeah, That's where I'm coming from. But I think the point we're making, Paul, and and Matt, we have Matt Wolman on the line, Matt. We will get to you in a second. I apologize. Is that they're not going to get to 35 or 36, I think it is, right? And say, all right, well, we really like this edge rusher, but he's too similar to Ellison Smith. We're not going to draft him. Oh, I think that conversation could happen. It may, it will not cover a huge am- uh, amount of percentage of the decision, but that conversation will happen. No, but my point is that they determine they want an edge rusher, but they're not going to say, well, he's the same type of player as Ellison Smith. So we're not going to pick him, even though we want an edge rusher. We're not going to pick a different type of edge rusher because Ellison Smith is a certain body type. I think the further you get in the draft, the more that conversation happens. For instance, Karloftis, right? He might be there at the top of the second round. It's possible. Sure. It's possible. Right. Okay? His type of style, do you think that that's a good Martindale fit no, right but- now? Yes or no? I would say probably not. I say not. Right. So I would pass on Karloftis. Well, right, but that's but that's his style of player, regardless of who's on the roster. Correct. I don't have a problem saying that. (laughs) That's the the whole point we're making. No, but the the longer you draft, the more that what is on your roster matters. Because here's the rule of thumb. Scout told me this many many years ago. Rule of thumb is. When you draft a guy, especially the higher in the rounds that he is, you have to be 100% sure that that guy is going to make the team or has at least a realistic chance of making the team, and you have to know exactly how your coach is going to use him. Of course. That's mandatory. Of course. Well, if if Wink Martindale looks at one of these guys, right, and they're, oh, you know, we think his grade's there, he's in the cluster. Wink, what do you think? Look, man, I already got the guy in my roster who I want. I don't I don't need that but guy. Again, I'm not a... gonna campaign for him. So my point is But your your point you're making is that there's not gonna be a need at edge. We're stipulating there's a need at edge. There's a need for edge providing it's high enough and the guy's impactful enough. Once you get past Good. maybe that second round pick, there may not be that much of a need for an edge. We're arguing because past each maybe other, that's not maybe the, point the scheme will work. I I understand, but that's not the art that's not the argument we're making. Okay. You, you, we're on maybe right. we're on yes. different pages here. Yes, I think we are. That's fine. All right. Let 
Let's go to our guest. We apologize for the delay, Matt. We have uh, very enthusiastic Northeastern arguments between each other here talking about draft prospects. He is Matt Waldman. We have him on every year. He creates his rookie scouting portfolio uh, since 2003. Uh, he does all skill position, guys. So we're going to focus on the offense here, quarterbacks, running backs, tight ends, wide receivers. Matt, uh, we've probably had you on for five or six straight years now. Hope you are well. You can check him out on Twitter, at Matt Waldman. He is the link there for his RSP, his rookie scouting portfolio. Make sure you check it out. Matt, good to talk to you, man. How are you? I'm doing great. If I were the scouting director with that conversation, I probably would have gone out for a smoke break, I think. <laughs> that would have been a good decision, Matt. With a yeah. funny cigarette, I might add. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it would have been a cigarette, to be quite honest with you. I'm not even a smoker. I'm not even a smoker. I think you'd pick up smoking after that conversation, Matt. That's what would happen. Yeah. All right, Matt. Uh, let, let, let's get started here. We, we don't think the Giants are in uh, the quarterback uh, conversation here, but I think it's a good place to start. Um, we have about 22 minutes here with you. Um, what's your take on this class? And put it into context when you compare it to the last two or three classes we've had into terms of, of how you might project these guys when they get to the NFL. Yeah, you're talking about skill positions in total. Um, then, then, yeah. I mean, listen, the quarterback group is fascinating just because you have guys with certain skill sets, but there are some – fairly significant flaws with a number of them who are at the top of the board or at least rated as such where it just looks like in a year where the NFL we're going to see whether the NFL has learned its lesson or whether it's they've got beer goggles at closing time a little bit and feel like they need <laughs> to get a, a guy in the play. first round wow you know, I, I've I've read, I've read, I wrote this about Terrell Pryor when they drafted him, you know, as an early round pick. That it was kind of the beer goggles effect at closing time. The closer you get to the draft, and you didn't hit on somebody in free agency, now you feel like, well, if they show a shred of potential skill, then I've got to bring them into the organization in the first round because you know there's a, like there's a desperation of you know whether you're going to be able to hit on a guy. There's some talent there but it's fascinating in terms of some of the flaws um and then with the running back class it's an i think it's an underrated class with skilled players but the demand is low so you're going to see some guys who who i think have the skills to be second or early third day picks who might fall to the fifth or sixth or seventh round and may wind up being labeled as career backups who have to like earn an opportunity due to injury and then surprise from there. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a, about three to four guys that will probably get drafted in rounds two, two and three um, who are very talented. And there's some more guys like, you know, your guy over, in, you know, at Rutgers, who I think is a very good, very good running back, um, Pacheco, who I think is a little bit underrated um, based on the line play that he's had. Wide receivers, a boom-bust class. There's some really fun players at the top. Um, maybe, and this class, if all of them hit, could be as strong as the past two classes, which have been some of the best classes for wide receiver in recent memory. But they are. But there's some guys with some holes in their games, and fit is an interesting prospect. You know, everyone wants to get the new Debo Samuel in the same way that everybody wanted to run the. Wanted to um, wanted to get the new Patrick Mahomes. Well, that you know, there's only one of those types of guys, and Traylon Burks is that type of player who might be able to fit in a system for Debo Samuel. But is the right team going to draft him, and does he necessarily have the skills to develop along the lines that Samuel did? 
And so, you know, he's getting a lot of play as a top prospect, but is he necessarily one? I don't know. And there's a number of players like that in this class who, you know, whether due to injury or due to certain holes in their game, they're going to need the right fit and tight end. It's kind of an upside-down class. If you draft like Bill Belichick, which is say, listen, we can find a blocker in the late round. We want a guy who can run routes and be a matchup problem. Well, there's a couple of guys at the top of the board, but then there's guys who are probably not going to get drafted by the NFL until the third day or maybe signed as undrafted free agents, who I would rate higher if I'm going to go by that model of how you evaluate players. If I'm going to evaluate by the we want guys who can do both as much as possible. Well, then a guy like Jeremy Ruckert might be near the top of your board, but if you're rating totally just by can it be a matchup problem for wide receiver, you know, against defensive backs, then he's probably much further down. So it's a fascinating class, fun to evaluate, but if you're like, say, a fantasy player or a draft pick who's looking for an instant impact guy, um, it's a little more boom bust this year, but if it hits, you know, we could, and it could be a really fun group. All right, we got to reverse the uh, the pyramid here because the number one item that I saw when I looked at your book, because you you sent your your skill position review book to John, and we had a chance to glance at it before the show. Um, everybody wants to know if the Giants have two picks in the top ten, what are the chances that a quarterback is going to go up there and push somebody else down to the Giants? But in looking at your your input here, your uh, review. You're not particularly high on Pickett and Willis, two of the guys who everybody thinks are going to be the first two quarterbacks taken. Why don't you explain to the to the folks out there exactly what you see, how you interpret it, and how many QBs do you think could go in the top 10, not based on talent, but based on the fact that we all know people like to trade up and get them anyway? Sure. You know, and a big part of draft capital, you know, the – Picking guys in the early round is about things other than tape. You know, it's about whether or not they've won games or they put up a lot of great stats, whether they're someone who does a great job in the interview portion on the whiteboard, the academic aspect of quarterbacking. And so you're looking at physical skills. You're looking at, um, you, you know, the mental acumen to remember play calls and that they show, at least in theory, they understand decision-making. But here's the thing. What I look for with players, and it's why like guys like Drew Locke or Jordan Love were low on my list, and guys like Patrick Mahomes was my top quarterback, or Baker Mayfield being low, Mac Jones being high. Um, you know, players like that. The reason is, is that I'm looking for players who show the ability to fuse all the physical, mental, and academic, as well as intuitive skills, of knowing when something is open and not open and being able to act on it with that confidence quickly. It's kind of like, you know, what you guys do for a living. You have to be quick on your feet. You've got to be able to be um, able to deliver with great timing. And that's something where you can learn about those things in school. You can learn about those things in training, but you still have to hit your mark fast and you still have to do it with a level of intuition and confidence. Um, and you could know all about what you guys do for a living and still not to be able to do it when the, when the on-air sign lights up. And I think that that's the same thing with quarterbacking. And so, you know, when you look at Kenny Pickett, I think he can be a good quarterback in this league, but I call him the three-and-a-half-quarter QB1 for this NFL draft class because when you watch him against certain types of pressure, pressure that he does not anticipate pre-snap, 
and it, and he sees a color flash across his eyes, he overreacts. He loses his form so that he cannot keep his eyes downfield, and he winds up baiting himself or creating situations where he leads himself into more pressure, a lot like what Baker Mayfield has done in Cleveland throughout his career, um, which creating more pressure than it's worth, even though he's mobile. And it's with quarterbacking, it's about those three to five plays per game that you have to make. The defense puts you in a corner and says, listen, I don't care whether you've thrown for 300 yards today and two touchdowns. You need that. You need to make these three to five plays to win this game because we're going to put you in a corner where we know what you don't do well. And this is something that takes about, you know, 16 to 18 games for them to figure out and implement different things from scouting the players. And that, you know, if they put them in those situations and the player can't overcome it, then those guys are the ones that usually don't get that second contract. Those are the ones that start to regress, at least in terms of how fans see it. And when you look at a guy like Kenny Pickett, he has difficulty with those three to five plays the game. People will look at that fake slide and go, look how savvy he is. But if you watch... I think we lost Matt. That wasn't me. Yes. <laughs> that was a click. All right, let me... Uh, you guys chat. Let me get Matt back up here. <laughs> well, the other thing I was going to actually follow up and pick up on, Paul, what you were alluding to, because in his portfolio for our listeners that may not be familiar with Matt's work is he literally... I mean, he'll break down the quarterbacks by different features. For example, hash accuracy, throwing from the platform, pressure... No pressure. He literally he has a classification for each one. So mm-hmm. it was interesting to hear him, you know, talk about when you compile everything as opposed to just looking at one item or getting enamored by the record or the passing touchdowns versus the interceptions. And listen, I'm sure a lot of teams take all of these factors into consideration. I'm not saying that this is brand new, but it's this type of thinking that is so imperative, especially if you're willing to invest a top ten, top five pick in a quarterback. Well, one of the things he mentioned already, and and there's no question, these guys train specifically for the combine. They train for those interviews, and that's a lot of the places where these guys gain a little extra polish and get a little bit of a jump. Hey, Lance, uh, Matt's back. Why don't you jump over to the next spot you want to go to here? Well, what I was going to follow up, Matt, in terms of you were talking about Kenny Pickett and Paul also asked about Malik Willis. When you put all of these factors together, because I was just talking about to our listeners, your portfolio, I mean, you analyze every feature for the quarterback. Who in your mind has that as close to complete package as possible that may fall a little bit lower in the draft but could very well reap the biggest reward if a team is willing to take a chance on him? Sure. At the top of the board, I think Matt Corral may lack the the proven skills in an NFL-style offense, but I think he has the factors that he fuses things together well that he'll develop Carson Strong, if as long as the knee is healthy enough that they don't think he's in, in the JSI situation where it could blow up at any moment and then his career is shortened, Carson Strong has those skills. He's very good at avoiding pressure in the pocket. He's not unbelievably mobile, but he knows how to bait pressure and make the efficient move like the way you would look at a Dan Marino or Philip Rivers back in the day or a Peyton Manning where you don't need to or Tom Brady, you don't need to move a ton. He has great skills in that regard. Later in the draft, even, I think of Skylar Thompson at Kansas State is a player who has the best pocket management in this class and has good mobility, uh, uh, an NFL-caliber starter arm. It's not a top 
15 arm in the NFL, but it's certainly good enough to be a starter. And I think he's a guy who's very underrated, did extremely well in the Manning camp last year. And he played in a, a pure West Coast offense, so he actually has experience making adjustments at the line with blocking as well as audibles and and you know has that type of experience and I thought he scored extremely well for me at, at a level that his draft capital won't be there but I won't be surprised if there's a team that trades up to get him in rounds three or rounds four. Well Matt much like much like you I also think Jamison Williams is the best receiver in this class but I don't want to talk about the top of your list right now. I want to jump to the second day where I think you can find some really good value at wide receiver and I think one thing you make pretty clear in your portfolio is that you need to fit these wide receivers into the right role with the right team. So who are some of these day two, round two, round three wide receivers that you like? And more specifically, for those specific players, how do you think you need to use them in order for them to 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 meet their highest potential? Certainly. You know, a guy like Alec Pierce is an interesting player out of Cincinnati, and he's someone that gives you that ability to go up and win the football um, in contested situations. And there's a little bit of, you know, he's kind of, if I were to make a comparison, say a spectrum, I think he's better than what a guy like Marquez Callaway of the Saints already offered is kind of a jump ball receiver who also can win against zone deep um, and occasionally win some man-to-man. And then a guy who maybe he's aspiring to become, which is Justin Jefferson, who's an, you know, an all-pro. But you can see with Alex, Alex Pierce said he would be a good guy that you could use as a flanker right now um, and probably use him or use him as your third option where he would get the benefit of one-on-ones in the middle of the field and and he's very good at being able to go up and win the ball. So you could use him in a way that Buffalo uses Gabriel Davis right now, but I think he has way more upside than Davis in terms of being able to win one-on-one. Christian Watson is another one who I think you look at the kid out of North Dakota State, who's six four two zero eight, you know four three six forty, excellent acceleration and short um, short area agility, and he's a player also that you can use in select situations where maybe you you use you know trip sets on one side and line him up on an island one on one against the defender and let him you know win with his athletic ability there, or you hide him a little bit early on in those trips or bunch sets where he can get clean releases off the line of scrimmage and working in the open space. And he's a player that could grow into that thing. And same with Traylon Burks, who probably will get drafted early, but he's a player that, you know, you're going to have to find that fit where how many teams have a George Kittle, a Kyle Juszczyk, and a Trent Williams who can, you know, clear the lane like that for him to be able to be a runner and then use the play action off of that for him open space as a receiver. I don't think there are many teams, so I think he can hit big, but probably going to need to be used that way. A guy like Jahan Dotson is another one, kind of an Isaac Bruce, T.Y. Hilton type of player in terms of aspiration, what you get from because he's a very good route runner. Um, and I think that if you can use him in the slot a little bit more early on in his career, he can grow into a player like, say, Hilton, where Hilton started in the slot. You can use him a little bit more outside as he develops as a route runner and gets used to, you know, NFL defenders trying to press him. Um, you know, Sky Moore, Sky Moore, Khalil Pimpton, Calvin Austin, Wandale Robinson are all smaller end players who you can use as both slot players and occasionally either to the outside or maybe even as a running back 
in passing down situations. I think a guy like Robinson is very good in that respect. Austin might be the one where if, if he shows what he showed on tape in college, being able to go up and win the ball on back shoulders and on underthrown targets, if he can unlock that in the NFL, I think he has the upside to be an outside guy. Matt, it seems to me that the tight end spot is probably more fertile this year than it's been in an awful long time. Now, we're not talking about having a Kyle Pitts at the top of the draft because that's not going to happen, regardless of how highly you might think of a couple of these guys. But when you start getting to that you know, third round, fourth round, I see a lot of guys who have make-it 53-man roster grades and a bunch of guys who can be two-way tight ends, too which surprises me, but that's the way the crop seems to be growing. Do you see it the same way? I do, because, you know, you can. this is a class where with no Kyle Pitts, but you look at Pat Fryermuth, who I've joked was Rob Slokowski, but someone who could still be uh, a terrific player for you because he's got the all-around skills. Trey McBride is in that range. You know, if 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 you know if Fryermuth is Rob Slokowski, Trey McBride is H Kowski for the H back size that he is, and he's someone that will probably grow into an inline role. But he's great at going up and winning the ball. He has some of the best contested catch techniques that you're looking for, and he's a very good runner. He's not shifty, but he gets his feet up well and breaks a lot of tackles and makes guys miss much more than you would expect when you look at his gait. Charlie Kolar. Kate Otten, Greg Dolchevich, these are all guys that give you uh, at least skill as an H-back, as a blocker who can be effective on the backside or double-teaming with somebody on the front side of running plays, but also they can work the zones, they're tough, they're reliable at the catch point. Dolchevich has the speed you're looking for um, down the field. Kolar's more like a Mark Andrews type of player who's great against zones and, and finds a way to get open. Otten didn't play with a great quarterback, but has a good all-around game. And then some of these late-round guys you mentioned, like Cole Turner out of Nevada. You know, people like Romeo Dubs, the wide receiver, who was you know catching targets from, from Carson Strong. But Cole Turner was the go-to guy in, in pivotal down-and-distance situation. Really wins the ball well at 6'6", six, six, good length, but he can get low and extend for the ball and win those throw-open targets that you need to make in the NFL in the middle of the field as well as in the red zone. Curtis Hodges at Arizona State, 6'8", 257 pounds, also fluid, someone who is, has no qualms about going over the middle and, and winning that ball. And then you have guys who may not be talked about a lot, like I, you know, Isaiah Likely is getting talked about a lot, but if he grows into his frame a little bit more, and oftentimes smaller school players, their athletic ability isn't as strong due to the, you know, the amount of money that's poured into strength and conditioning programs at big schools isn't the same as smaller ones. If NFL teams think that he can add more quick twitch muscle and get more explosive, then he has the receiving game looking for to be a top, um, you know, move tight end. And guys like Jake Ferguson and Jalen Weidermeyer, um, you know, Jelani Woods, these are all guys that show some sort of potential. Ferguson, to me, is probably the lowest end of the, you know, well, Weidermeyer has the least athletic ability, but Ferguson, to me, is a guy who people don't talk about but could have, like, that 10-year career where some seasons, if, if a team needs him to be its you know third option in a passing attack, 
he can be very productive because of his all-around skills. Think of a guy like um, Garrett Graham, who was a former Wisconsin tight end who played with the Texans with Matt Schaub way back in the day and had a couple of good seasons, even a Pro Bowl year. Ferguson's that kind of player. Matt, the one position we haven't discussed yet with you is running back, and realistically, the Giants could very well address that. They have Saquon, who obviously has dealt with some injuries, and they only brought in Matt Breida this offseason. Who do you like or who jumps out to you? Similar to Paul's line of questioning at the tight end position, maybe a guy that is more than just somebody that can be that big bruiser or big runner, but can help it pass protection and catch the ball to the backfield. Sort of a jack-of-all-trades type of running back that maybe you can realistically target anywhere between rounds three and rounds five? I think Pacheco is on that board there for you because he's a sturdy, explosive back who, when people talk about his decision-making flaws, I think they conflated it with subpar offensive line play. Um, and he can run zone or gap. He gives you kind of a, a player that's similar in upside that to Cam Akers because he catches the ball extraordinarily well, very good hand-eye coordination, and I think he can develop as a route runner. And at the very least, he's a little bit more like maybe a plus version of the Packers' Kylan Hill, who looked pretty good in camp until he got a knee injury. Um, so he's a good one. I think Jerome Ford, who's you know, 5'10", 210, runs hard, makes defenders miss in traffic, catches the ball well and has a speed to flip the field. I think he's a little underappreciated in the same way that, you know, he's kind of the size of, if you remember, Cadillac Williams back in the day. Um, you know, he can give you a little bit of that. Um, I like his effort as a pass protector. I think that there's some skill there for him to do do that caliber of work. Kevin Harris is an underappreciated guy out of South Carolina, 5'10", 221, powerful back, more explosive than advertised. Um, you know, at the very least, I think he can give you that Jamal Williams type of compliment, a hard, sturdy runner in between the tackles who, can, who has potential as a pass protector, can catch the ball well, does well over the middle with that. And then a Keontae Ingram is one of my favorites. This guy, he's he, on the at worst, I think he could be like Chris Ivory, the former um, Buffalo Bill, New York Jet, New Orleans Saint, who runs hard who has great explosive short area movement to make people miss, very creative when he needs to be, um, but smart about picking his choices, catches the ball well. At, at, at his best, maybe you could say he's aspiring to be a Kareem Hunt type of player. I don't think he's as good as Hunt, but he's certainly a player that if, if the Giants needed him to carry the load for them, he would produce, and you wouldn't have the kind of drop-off that you would feel like it would hurt your game plan. You might not get Saquon Barkley's um, can break it from anywhere type of potential, but you can, you're going to get a guy who's going to move the chains and break big plays of 10 to 20 yards on a consistent basis. Matt, great stuff, my friend. we got to run. Tell the folks one more time where they can find your RSP. Yep, www.mattwaldmanrsp.com. Been doing it since 2006, and it's one of the most looked-at guides by scouts, at least according to recruiting directors in Division One, like Alex Brown at SMU, who meets with scouts on a regular basis. It's one of the most purchased independent draft guides out there. No, I appreciate it, Matt. Again, if, guys, when I say this thing's detailed, it is literally over a thousand pages. It's insane. Yep. No, it's great. So, it really if is. you guys, especially if you're, I know this is important for Paul. If you're a big fantasy football person out there, you're looking for skill <laughs> position guys to, to draft in your upcoming Matt draft. Matt is busting horns it here. Is, it, 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 is, it is a fantastic guide <laughs> as you take a look at some of the skill position guys out there. Matt, great stuff. Uh, I'll be in touch. Let's talk soon, and good luck the rest of the way, and congratulations yet another successful guide. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it.
Bye. That's Matt Waldman. Make sure you check it out. And again, you can follow him on Twitter at Matt Waldman. All his uh, links are there for the guide. For Paul Dottino and Lance Meadow, I'm John Schmuck. We're back tomorrow at noon for another episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll talk to you then.